This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name is Jenna Johnson. I'm- this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, September 9th. Today, why a secret meeting with the Taliban never happened. What Democrats heard about impeachment at home. And searching for hurricane survivors in the Bahamas. So let's just start by having you say who you are and what you do. I'm Karen DeYoung. I'm the senior national security correspondent here at The Post. I'm just curious, like, what was your reaction when you saw what President Trump had tweeted this weekend? Uh, My first reaction was, "Uh uh-oh, I need to go to work. (laughs) And it was a Saturday night. For months, Karen has been following as U.S. officials have tried to negotiate a peace deal with the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban. As President Trump has said, after... uh, Almost now two decades of war in Afghanistan, the hour has come for peace. For the last nine months, the United States has facilitated a peace process. Peace is our highest priority. And that Afghanistan must never again serve as a platform for international terrorism. So Karen is just as surprised as anyone that these negotiations have now fallen apart. Something that the president confirmed outside the White House on Monday afternoon. They're dead. They're dead. As far as I'm concerned, they're dead. Well, over the weekend, we found out that President Trump had planned to have a meeting on Sunday at Camp David with Afghan President Ghani and the top leadership of the Taliban. He was going to see them separately and then, I think, hope to come out and announce that the peace deal had been finalized. The parameters of the deal were already set. There wasn't anything else to to negotiate. I think we subsequently found out that what the president hoped was that he could come out and announce that there had been a peace deal. And what were the parameters of this agreement? The agreement was that the United States would withdraw somewhat more than 5,000 of the 14,000 troops it has in Afghanistan as an initial step, and this would happen in 135 days. In exchange for that, the Taliban would formally sever all their ties to al-Qaeda and would prevent any terrorist attack on the United States ever again from being launched from Afghanistan. The deal also included an agreement by the Taliban to meet face-to-face with the Afghan government within a short time period after the deal was signed, and that one of the first things that would be negotiated in those talks would be a nationwide ceasefire. So at the same time that President Trump is announcing that he was supposed to have a meeting with the Taliban and with the Afghan president to sign this agreement, he also announces that it's not going to happen, that he's canceled it at the last minute. Right. What exactly did he say? He said that he was canceling it because there had been an attack on Thursday in Kabul in which a number of people were killed, uh, among them an American service member. And he said he didn't see how they could negotiate peace when they couldn't even arrange for a ceasefire. And is this seen as 
a legitimate reason for canceling these talks, the fact that this bombing happened? Well, I think that we don't know. It was my idea, and it was my idea to terminate it. I didn't even, I didn't discuss it with anybody else. When I heard, very simply, that they killed one of our soldiers and 12 other innocent people, I said, there's no way I'm meeting on that basis. There's no way I'm meeting. This was the 16th service member to be killed in Afghanistan this year. A ceasefire before the deal was signed was never part of the negotiations. The deal was that they would agree to negotiate a ceasefire after this U.S.-Taliban deal was signed and that a ceasefire was a subject for the Afghan government to talk to the Taliban about. And I think the negotiators always expected that the level of violence would increase on the eve of signing a deal. U.S. violence had increased during that period. There had been a number of Afghan military attacks on the Taliban backed by the United States over the past several weeks. It's true. There have been attacks during the talks, uh, attacks from the Taliban and Americans uh, and enormous attacks from American forces putting in real pressure on the Taliban. And in fact, Secretary Pompeo, who was on television Sunday, talked several times about the fact that, as he said, more than a thousand Taliban had been killed in the last 10 days. It's what's driven us to be able to have the success at the negotiating table that we were beginning to have. So if Secretary Pompeo had been the one who had helped put this deal together and basically serve it up on a platter for the president to sign, how did he feel about the fact that this meeting was canceled at the last minute? I won't say no one, but I think not many people thought the Camp David thing was a good idea from the start. But the president wanted to do it, and so it was set in motion. The question now is, where do the negotiations go? Are they finished? I think uh, Secretary Pompeo was an advocate of the negotiations. The envoy who was negotiating for the United States was his guy. This was diplomacy. And even though other people in the White House didn't like it very much, I think he felt like they'd done a good job and they had a product to show for it. Is there a sense that those other people in the White House that weren't a fan of these negotiations, that their voices were part of the reason why President Trump decided at the last minute not to do this? Well, we're primarily talking about John Bolton, the president's national security advisor. He had argued throughout the negotiations that it was a bad idea to talk to the Taliban, that the president could withdraw troops whenever he wanted. He didn't have to have a deal with the Taliban. He was speaking to the president regularly and emphasizing those two points. And the fact that these negotiations with the Taliban are canceled at this point, what does that mean for the U.S. and our plan to take troops out of Afghanistan? And also, what does that mean for folks in Afghanistan? Well, for the folks in Afghanistan, I I think that, that there's pretty widespread agreement that the level of violence will go up now. Pompeo said things are going to get worse for them now. When Trump came into office, there were about 9,000 U.S. troops on the ground in Afghanistan. President Obama had vastly lowered the number there. Trump said, I'm going to end this war. I'm going to get them all out. He was persuaded in 2017 not to pull out, but in fact to increase the number of troops there. The argument was, yes, we're very close to turning the corner here. And if we just had a few more troops. And so he sent another more or less 5,000 troops These 5,000 would be the ones that he would now pull out, putting him right back where he was when he first came to office. Whether the president will go ahead and withdraw this initial 5,000 troops is unclear. But I think the president is very eager to have some troop withdrawal 
to fulfill his campaign promise. And do we have a sense of when you look at the level of violence in Afghanistan or terrorism in Afghanistan from a few years ago to now, whether that has increased or stayed the same? Well, you have to separate out the level of overall violence in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda, which was once very strong in Afghanistan, that's where 9-11 was planned, is now actually quite small and ineffective. The uh, U.S. intelligence estimates that there are only several hundred Al-Qaeda people. What has changed is the Islamic State. As they have expanded beyond Iraq and Syria, um, they have established a base inside Afghanistan, in the northeastern part of Afghanistan. Actually, the Taliban hate the Islamic State for all kinds of boring doctrinal reasons, and they have been fighting the Islamic State. And one of the hopes of this deal was that after the Taliban and the United States and the Afghan military stopped fighting each other, that they could all direct their efforts toward the Islamic State. And that's what the Americans really care about. If what President Trump is trying to do is taking out these 5,000 troops that he had put in a few years ago, that that is falling short of his promise and his idea to remove all troops from Afghanistan. Well, he's got conflicting demands here. A lot of people have not been happy about these negotiations and have said, look, it's a surrender. Why are you even talking to these people? Let's beat them. Others have said, we've been there for 18 years. This hasn't worked. Let the Afghans sort it out themselves as long as we can make sure that global terrorist groups like the Islamic State and al-Qaeda are not going to use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack us. The thinking would be that you can sort of split the difference. You say, I'm bringing home the troops we don't need. There have been too many there, and we're still working um, to win or withdraw, depending on who the audience is on any particular day. But at this point, it's sort of unclear which version of that is still a possibility for the president. I think we don't know. And at some point, he will say, this is what I want to do. And I believe that that will be based not only on what's happening in Afghanistan, but also on what the political impact is here. Karen DeYoung is a senior national security correspondent for The Post. There's been this sort of impeachment movement that liberal groups on the outside have been pushing. And basically, they've been trying to start this brush fire where they were hoping to grow support for impeachment in districts across the country and sort of grow the number of people who want to oust the president. After a six-week break, Congress is back in session today. And for Democrats in the House, one of the questions still hanging over their heads is, are they going to impeach the president? Congressional reporter Rachel Bade and several of our colleagues at The Post wanted to get a read on what exactly some of these lawmakers were hearing from their constituents over the summer, especially the more moderate Democrats, the ones representing districts that voted for Trump. So Rachel and our colleagues went to the places where lawmakers and their constituents actually talk face to face town halls. 
I have a couple questions. Um, the first one's actually for my mom. Um, thank you to everyone here for coming. So thank you for your question. I'd really like to see you take a trip to the border. We are doing good things in Washington. They don't always make the news or, or make it all the way to you. But. My big issue is the climate change. I appreciate the question. The town hall is basically, you know, Citizen Engagement 101. It's where a lot of constituents come and they ask questions of their lawmakers and they um, they tell them the sort of things they want them to support or to back off. And a lot of times when we see these big grassroots movements, they first happen in town halls. Think back to 2010 when Democrats were passing Obamacare. A whole bunch of Republicans showed up to town halls. They were angry. And this was the beginning of the Tea Party movement. And ultimately, it would mean the end of Democratic control in the House when voters actually sent Republicans to Washington because they were mad about Obamacare. We saw the same thing happen in 2017 when Republicans were actually in control and trying to repeal Obamacare. A whole bunch of constituents showed up that spring at constituent town halls and said they don't want them to do this. Ultimately, the whole thing failed and Republicans lost the House in the next election. So I went to Pennsylvania to Representative Susan Wilde's district. Um, it's a blue-collar industrial district that she flipped from Republican to Democrat. Hillary Clinton won it by, I think, one point in 2016. So a real battleground area. And Constituents did ask about impeachment. Her response was, I'm a former lawyer and we don't have enough evidence yet. Uh, you know, I don't think we've got the facts lined up. I don't think the evidence is there. I don't think we would have, and you know, I think we all know that it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate. But if we're going to go through this process, we have to have enough facts and evidence that we at least convince the court of public opinion that, that going the impeachment route was the right way to go. Um, so, I, and I just don't think we're there yet. One of my colleagues also went to a town hall for Haley Stevens, who is a freshman Democrat in Michigan in another district that Trump won in 2016. It was pretty mundane and pretty boring until one moment when constituents asked about impeachment. Uh, what are we going to do about the guy in the White House? The room led up with cheers and people saying, Impeach him, impeach him, get him out. I, I believe in, uh, in a process here. I am not being complicit. I am not going to let you down. Certainly very favorable and enthusiastic in pushing for the investigations, the conversations, the questions. There was another town hall in Michigan with Slotkin, Alyssa Slotkin, who is a freshman Democrat as well. And... She would basically nod her head in affirmation when people pushed for impeachment. So in terms of impeachment, we will see in the next few weeks what the administration decides to do. I hope they answer the subpoenas. Saying I understand, but ultimately she didn't give any ground and said she wants to stick with the issues. I think the president digs his own holes every single day. And I don't need to push him in them. He goes by himself. So I don't spend a lot of time um, on him. In Pennsylvania, in Connor Lamb's district, uh, which is another battleground district, constituents actually pressed him three different times on impeachment. And one person specifically quoted from the Mueller report to say, you have a duty and you need to oust the president. It's not about the other members of our caucus. It's about what we know to be true uh, and what we still need to find out. I happen to believe, having read the Mueller report, 
back to front, back again. Uh, but there are a lot of questions we still need to know the answer to. People were really pushing him, and yet he also didn't budge. I am not convinced now, uh, nor have I been, that we have met the bar for impeachment. I think that's an extremely high bar. Um, but I'm continuing to follow these investigations as much as I can. In New Jersey, Congressman Andy Kim, who also flipped a Republican district in a district Trump carried in 2016, he was also asked about this, but it was a very civil conversation where people just said, We have a mess in D.C. right now. You know there's a wonderful... What is your position? And I want you to know that should you back impeachment, I'll be behind you. You have my vote to vote for impeachment. We have... There are 31 Democrats in these Trump districts, and only two of them have come out and supported impeachment in the past couple of weeks. And that's particularly noteworthy because the outside groups that were trying to sort of create this movement told us that they were going to try to focus on these members over the past six weeks. But ultimately, they've only been able to move two. Aren't these members worried about alienating some of their more liberal voters who would see a lack of willingness to pursue impeachment as kind of— being cowardly? That's absolutely true. And I actually think that's a big reason we have seen the number of Democrats supporting impeachment in the House has grown recently. There's a political question, uh, a political calculation that is being made right now for a lot of Democrats. And if they come from these blue districts where a lot of progressives are saying, hey, you need to impeach the president, it's kind of like an easy thing for them where they can say, sure, I support impeachment. And that sort of gets the left off their back, even though we're not really seeing them push for it in the House. You said that Representative Susan Wilde had used the argument that there's just not enough evidence or there needs to be more investigations done before uh, House Democrats could seriously pursue an impeachment. Um, what were some of the other rationales that, that, that some of these more moderate Democratic members made at these town halls? So a lot of Democrats in these districts, they say they haven't heard a lot about it. Well, I will say a lot of them have said over the break that more people are bringing up impeachment, but they're very much hearing two different messages from voters in these districts. They're hearing from the far left that wants to do it. And then they're hearing from moderates and independents, people who vote both Republican and Democrat, who don't want them to do this, who want them to focus on things like health care and prescription drugs. And I think since they're hearing very divergent opinions on impeachment, they don't think they should be sort of uh, bull running forward on something that's so divisive, especially when they ran on these legislative issues that moderates want to talk about. And these are moderates they need to keep their seats. I also think it's interesting thinking back to the beginning of the summer and when we were hearing these rumblings about this idea that this summer is going to be the time where Democrats galvanize and get behind an impeachment effort, a lot of that was dependent on this hearing that was going to happen in July with Robert Mueller appearing on Capitol Hill, giving his testimony about the Mueller report. And I think for a lot of Democrats that went differently than they expected, and I wonder how much of the current... Uh, lack of excitement about about continuing in, in an impeachment direction is because of how the Mueller hearing went. 
this is a huge—you hit on a huge problem for House Democrats right now, and that is that the base increasingly wants them to do this, and there's a growing number of House Democrats who want them to do this. But the public sentiment, once again, is not there. It hasn't moved. They thought bringing in Mueller in July, he would be able to lay out, you know, these five to ten areas of potential obstruction of justice that the president was involved in and that that would move the needle. But Mueller was not able to deliver that. If you look at the polling, it hasn't changed at all since he came in to testify. And so Democrats who want to impeach the president, they have this problem. And that is that, you know, despite Mueller's findings— Despite, you know, federal prosecutors in New York saying Trump was individual one when it came to hush payments, illegal hush payments that were made to women during the 2016 campaign, you know, they're not able to do anything, even if they wanted to, because there are these Justice Department rules that they can't prosecute the president. And even though these big findings are coming to light, it's just not moving the public. The public is not backing impeachment. And so— Democrats are moving in one direction, but the public really hasn't followed. And so they have to try to figure out a way to have more hearings this fall that will actually change people's minds. And they haven't quite given up on that. In fact, they have a robust fall schedule where they're going to be bringing in Trump advisor from the campaign, Corey Lewandowski, who's been subpoenaed, a whole bunch of other White House officials. They're going to try to question them. They're going to try to have hearings on the hush payment issue to try to show more voters how Trump was involved or allegedly involved. But again, if Mueller can't move the needle, there's a real question about whether these hearings that they're looking at this fall will be able to do that. And I also wonder if it's just getting too late in Donald Trump's first term to really start thinking about launching something like this, that if there was a time for... Nancy Pelosi to get all the ducks in the row to start an impeachment that this summer would have theoretically been that time and that now that we're starting to get into the fall, we're starting to get pretty seriously into campaign season and that maybe the window is closing. A lot of pro-impeachment Democrats have this very fear and a lot of folks are looking at the end of the year as that time frame. Um, I talked to a lot of Democrats this spring who did want to impeach the president, and they thought the timeline, as you just pointed out, was this summer, that that would be a good time to have all these big hearings and, you know, um, potentially have a vote this fall to try to oust Trump. But that timeline keeps slipping and slipping and slipping as things sort of get tied up in the courts and as we are talking about, the public sentiment does not move. But there's a sense that once we get into 2020, you're absolutely right, that It will look increasingly political on the part of Democrats if they were to have an impeachment hearing uh, or an impeachment inquiry, um, a vote to impeach the president right before the election. I do think that there are exceptions to that, though. There are a bunch of court rulings right now that we are waiting for. The president has been ignoring subpoenas, and Democrats are basically suing the administration and trying to get a judge to rule on their behalf that certain people need to testify and certain documents documents need to be given over. If a judge rules this spring and the Trump White House ignores a federal judge, I could actually see a situation where you start to see public sentiment moving on this matter and Pelosi actually backs an impeachment push. Um, But short of that, I'm not sure we'll see it. If we don't end up seeing an impeachment and you have this situation where the majority of Democrats in the House are saying that they want to do it, but then nothing ultimately happens— I wonder, 
Is that good or is that bad for House Democrats? Because you could kind of see it either way, right? That 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 it would make Democrats look really hypocritical if everyone's talking about impeachment, but nobody actually has the gumption to to make it happen. But at the same time, I wonder if this if a situation like that would provide cover for some of the more liberal parts of the House Democratic caucus, but still not be too potentially risky or alienating for those more moderate members. Yeah, we hear a lot of Democrats talking about legacy and history. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a Democratic lawmaker say, what are my grandkids going to think about when they read about Trump in their history books, especially if Democrats don't impeach him in spite of all these findings that have come out? So I do think that that's a real concern. That being said, you know, Speaker Pelosi has said she has no problem being the bad guy. And she lived through uh, the impeachment of Clinton. And I know a lot of people will make the argument that this is way different than what happened with Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky and Republicans impeaching him. But Pelosi is really concerned about blowback. And I think her top priority right now is to keep the House. And right now she is not convinced that impeaching Trump is going to help her with that. um, And it's not going to help Democrats potentially take over the White House in 2020. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of pressure on her this fall, especially if Democrats are able to move public sentiment more toward backing this. Um, But she has said she doesn't mind being the bad guy. And, you know, one of her people even told me that if she's the last Democrat against impeachment, she's still not going to change her mind. Rachel Bade covers Congress for The Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. We really, really, really need to get off this island. It's the stench of that we walk through to get to the boat. The stench of that is so bad. The scenes that you witness there look like the scenes in a war zone. It has that feel of desolation, of bombs having fallen. Anthony Fiola has been reporting from the Bahamas after Hurricane Dorian. Everybody is still sort of in shock there. Everything gone, everything destroyed, and I don't have nobody. And right now, I ain't got no help. I ain't got no help. Nobody come help nobody. Nobody come help nobody. I don't know where my my children is. No phone, no nothing. They had seen hurricanes before in those parts, and I think a lot of them felt that it was going to be something on par with the hurricanes that they had felt before. But it was the, the unprecedented nature, I think, of the strength of Dorian, which was one of the the strongest storms recorded in the Atlantic, and the fact that even so many residents who had followed orders and gone to shelters 
found that even the shelters could not withstand the force of the storm. We heard all sorts of tales of people who just barely made it, you know, who when the eye wall came over were somehow able to get out of the shelters that they were in that had more or less collapsed um, and managed to get to some other firmer, higher ground. From last night, we've been sleeping outside right there on the floor. In the floor, on the grass. Same thing again tonight. You know, on the grounds of the hospital in Marshtown, which is only barely operational and which has a container in the back with bodies that are piling up, there were many locals that were just camped out in the parking lot. I only have these clothes. Where should I go? I don't have nowhere to go. I ain't got nobody else. My mommy dead, my brother, my cousin. Some of them had been staying inside the hospital for shelter until they were finally asked to leave so the hospital could try to regain some kind of normality. But a lot of these people had nowhere to go, including a woman who we spoke with who unfortunately had a horrible story to tell about how in the middle of the storm, uh, her brother had tried to save her mother from being washed away when the storm waters came in rushing into their home. They dead in the water. Um, the body right there by the church, I just moved my brother. I went there, I just see mommy, mommy still in the floor. That's her passport, my mommy passport. The whole bag, I just went back, I find it in the floor, my brother. Here she is, you know, trying to come to grips with that, even at the same time as she's trying to come to grips with the fact that she had nowhere to go. And she's trying to find adequate food and water for her child. I mean, these are the kinds of stories that we constantly heard over and over again from the people that we met on the ground. The residents of, of the Abacos Islands are now refugees in their own country and trying to figure out where they're going to lay their heads for the next few days and weeks. And you have heard some of the optimists say, we will rebuild and we'll be back. And I'm sure they will. You know, we have seen, for instance, in past storms that have hit Dominica and the Virgin Islands, we have seen those places begin to rebuild, even though they've also taught us that it takes years. And, you know, looking at the level of devastation that happened in places like Marsh Harbor, you know, I remember asking one woman who was at the dock about rebuilding, and she just kind of looked at me, pointing at the rubble behind her and basically saying, how do you rebuild that? Where do you even begin? Anthony Fiola is the South America and Caribbean Bureau Chief for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. We've really appreciated all the reviews we've gotten on Apple Podcasts over the past couple of weeks, including this one from a listener named Tony. Tony said, I just wish it was longer. I could listen all day. Tony, if you want to listen to episodes of Post Reports all day long, you totally can. Absolutely no judgment here. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? 
Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity personalized planning and advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.